Welcome to the FTSQ podcast series celebrating the non-conformist. Today we're interviewing Piers Roberts from our strategic partner, Riskit. Welcome, Piers. Uh, welcome to you. Lovely <laughs> to see you and uh, good luck with the whole series. Thank you very much. So I guess we'll get going and, and start uh, having a bit of a chat. Um, before we talk about you, I think it would be good to get your thoughts on what you consider a non-conformist to be. Well, um, I don't think a non-conformist necessarily sets out to be a non-conformist. I think they just don't conform. They don't fit in. There's something that uh, um, perhaps they would like to be able to fit in, but it's just that doesn't work for them. There's something missing that feels wrong and it has to be investigated. Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing, isn't it, about whether or not they, the way they're born is, is simply the way that they are and they generally just don't fit in. Some may not even necessarily know at the outset that they are different from everybody else. Some might, I don't know, what do you think? Do you think they're kind of born well, that way and then that's the way it is? Or Well, I definitely think that other people noticed that I didn't fit in before I realised that somehow I wasn't part of the group. Um, so it wasn't me realising that and then setting myself out to be different to everybody else. Everybody else thought that there was something slightly different. And, and to be honest, that was probably seen as something that was odd, something that was weird and something that uh, left me open to attack. Yeah. I think that that was born. I don't think I had any choice in the matter. Um, and I struggled to understand a number of things around that. One, I thought if I didn't fit in, there was something wrong with me. One, I would not have a great sense of belief in myself because everybody told me that I was the one that was wrong. And then of course, I struggled to understand the things that I didn't understand anyway. The world was very chaotic, it was very confusing. I didn't have access to the tools that others seem to have to navigate coming into adulthood, for example, sure. making career choices, setting yourself up in particular professions or industries or things. So I was really rather adrift. And I rather assumed that somewhere out there, there was somebody who could tell me all the answers and that what I needed to do was to find that person or that belief system and then I would be able to conform and fit in around that. And actually what I discovered that was that there wasn't anybody there who could tell me what all the answers were. What I found myself appreciating as I came to my late 20s was that anybody who knew all the answers was wrong. And that was one of the few things that I knew for sure. And so that left me trying to figure out how to navigate my life with a significant degree of uncertainty and confusion hanging around my head all the time. My brain was racing and racing and racing, but it would struggle to settle, it would struggle to compose itself. I think a lot of nonconformists find themselves in that headspace, don't they, about their brain just kind of works a little bit differently than, than other people. I think you've talked to me a lot in the past when we've had ch previous chats about your childhood and school and everything growing up so it'd be really interesting to dig into that you know tell us a little bit more about yourself from those perspectives and you know those different kinds of environments like uh, your family your school your university and work I'd, li I'd like to understand that a little bit better so starting maybe with 
family, I guess. Okay. Yeah. I was born into a family of four children. I was the third child, and we lived in rural mid-Essex in a well-to-do family without money being either a problem or without it being an ostentatious element of our lives. It was quite rural. It was um, quite isolated. I think a lot of factors in my life led me to be very much on my own. So we lived in an isolated spot without friends in the neighbourhood. So very much within our own small circle, surrounded by fields and cows. And then I was sent away to a boarding school from the age of eight. In that, you're quite isolated as well. And I certainly became more isolated as we got to the older school from 13 to 18. Clearly, I didn't fit in. I stood out for the wrong reasons as far as the school was concerned. And that left me very much on my own as well. The strength of that is that I have had this very long dialogue with myself. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's a very strong self with self relationship. Do you think that's, that's the case with a lot of other people that feel like they don't fit in? Do you think that often happens as well? Yes. I mean, who's the other person that doesn't fit in yeah. in the way that you don't fit yeah. in? It's not like they've got a badge on that says, come and meet me. I think you inevitably gravitate towards those people who are a bit like you. But I would say that I didn't find them either in home or school. And so I was significantly isolated. And it was only really when I got out of that environment and went abroad and went to university where I started to meet people who were very different to me in terms of that sort of advantage, white, middle class, male. Sure. And I suddenly found everything that wasn't like me to be exciting. <laughs> and everything that was like me, I struggled to get on with. And it noticed something missing or wrong within me from which I was then quite alienated. So that meant that A, I was looking outside of myself for where there was something exciting and interesting. There's both a challenge to all those values that come with being you know, the advantage group, yeah, the sure. patriarchy, the whiteness, yeah. the European sensibility, which obviously I reacted to. So at one level you get the pendulum swing that goes, right, therefore I'm going to believe in everything that's revolutionary left-wing. <laughs> Anarchy. Um, yeah, completely. And there's something very, very exciting about that in lots and lots of ways. Destroy the system. <laughs> But of course, if destroy the system means destroying myself, then that's quite a self-destructive thing as well. It's quite a dangerous place yeah. to go. And I think the struggle was to... Well, I firstly realised that the opposite of what I was didn't necessarily mean that it was great. There were failings to left-wing viewpoints, anarchism that need to be acknowledged as yeah, well absolutely. so it's it's kind of you know this was i guess the start of realizing that polar opposites aren't a very good way of understanding things if if what i had was destructive and dangerous it didn't mean that the opposite to that was good and great but i certainly needed to look outside of myself to try to find something that i could attach myself to that had value and i guess a lot of my 20s was about the struggle to find something that would appeal to me, that would allow me to question deeply what I was and what I believed in and where I would apply myself without really coming across a single solution that yeah. would provide for that. And actually it was, I chose at the end of my 20s to become a furniture maker. And in lots of ways that was about wanting to do an honest craft, um, to, to make something. 
and through that I came across the world of design and design for me became quite a hopeful thing. And also probably full of more people like you, I would guess, that thought differently and looked at the world in a different place or not? Well, they were a bit different to me still. I was admiring these designers who were setting out in the mid-90s to do their own thing. And yet I knew I wasn't a designer. Right. But I felt that there was a struggle for a lot of designers, and specifically designer makers, to bring their work to attention, to reach markets, to figure out how to earn a living on the back of what they were clearly very good at and very talented at. So I saw something that was aesthetically fabulous. I saw something which I felt was built upon good values of making something great. You know, you've got the old arts and crafts tradition of valuing the worker, valuing the materials, valuing the aesthetic. The craftsman, the, the craftsperson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which I felt was honest and genuine and had value. Um, but I realised I wasn't the best maker in the world and I realised I was never going to be the best designer in the world. But I thought this was fascinating. And I thought it was fascinating. I guess the thing that I liked about design was that the idea of design is that you should be allowed to ask questions, but there is a requirement on you to propose a solution. Sure. And what I would find when I was reading anarchist readings of history or other readings of history was that there were plenty of people that could see the failings in the current system, but I didn't believe in their solutions. And it seemed to me that mostly what I would read would be very interesting deconstructions of what was going on, followed by a, so you should trust me instead. <laughs> and my feeling was that that was more of what the problem was that existed presently, which is a, a small cadre of people in positions of authority and power lording it over everybody else. And that an awful lot of people were failed through that system and that it wasn't fair. And I guess I wanted to find something that was fair. And I didn't believe that replacing one authority model with a different authority model would actually provide a very good solution. Well, I think it's very much why we ended up gravitating towards each other, wasn't it? You know, there's the, the FTSQ, you know, approach to the world is, uh, you know, it's quite similar to you. But I think one of the things that's quite interesting from our perspective as well, to your point, is it's one thing to recognise that things aren't right and the status quo needs to be, for want of a better word, fucked. Um, but at the same time, I think it's on those of us that have recognised us to recognise that to also look at a solution. So that's very much what we're trying to do, and I know that that's what you're trying to do as well. So how? So let's dig a little bit deeper into the the hows of how you dealt with being different throughout your life. Was it easy? Was it hard? <laughs> probably a silly question oh. <laughs> you've already touched on this but I just want to dig a little um, bit deeper into how you dealt with it you know what were those moments that you thought I'm doing this to deal with being different and not conforming the first thing I did and perhaps is common is to run away and hide and to try to avoid the the bows and the, you know, the arrows that were fired at you and to try to deal with that sense of isolation and confusion and hurt to be honest with you it was very painful and to try to to try to deal with that to start with I was fortunate enough when I came across design and was able to start the shop and the shows to do something that was constructive that was that was exciting 
Tell us more about the shop and the shows that you're interested in. Okay. Well, they go back to an interest in design and an interest in the social sciences, the social context of change. I guess I identified that there was a generation of designers emerging in the period of the mid-90s who had, um, and that time, had seen an economic recession at the end of the 80s, early 90s. It had seen manufacturing leave Europe and it saw a load of young people growing up doing design degrees without any jobs at the end of the day and equally the terms upon which you would do deals with clients weren't very good and they wouldn't necessarily invest in your ideas and so there were a bunch of designers who started to go well maybe we should do things for ourselves maybe we should choose what ideas to invest in maybe we should just throw them out there and see what happens and that work was very very exciting i'd got involved in a show in germany called highlights design from great britain that drew together a whole bunch of design work from different areas fashion product industrial design graphics and it was a really exciting show and through that show i came to meet these characters who were doing exciting stuff the tom dixons the jams the simon Pengellis, the and and I saw it immediately as a kind of different way of behaving, a different way of approaching, a different aesthetic seemed to be emerging on the back of it. And really there was a different route to market as well. So you weren't relying on the traditional investors in design. You were saying, instead of relying on other people taking my work to market, I'm going to take my work to market directly. I'm going to have a relationship with the end user. And that became incredibly important, both in terms of making the finances work, because you weren't paying half the money to the retailer, half the money to the manufacturer. You it's were also more financially owning. viable for yourself. So it was a financially viable model. And, and this is really where the term the creative entrepreneur comes from. Mm. And the creative entrepreneur then had to assume responsibilities for developing routes to market and communicating with them, which were jobs that they hadn't had to do before. That made for better terms of work. It also meant that you had more diverse work coming out. And it also meant that you had a closer relationship with your end user. And bear in mind at that period, there was virtually no public shop window for contemporary design in this country. There hadn't really been a tradition of popular interest in design. So there were two design stores, three galleries in London which is laughable oh, when you think about now. what yeah. it is now. So in that sense, it was like a desert, but it was being driven by characters who were behaving in a slightly different way. And I found that very, very exciting. And where I could see evidence of work that was very exciting was within the UK, within Scandinavia, and in particular within the Netherlands. And what I did was I teamed up with a dear friend of mine, Rory Dodd, and we decided to open a shop which would contain all this work that we felt was different in a certain way from other work. And it certainly wasn't available anywhere. And my view was, well, surely this is obvious that it's fantastic. I was kind of still at that point where I hadn't realised that I fit in this area that's ahead of the curve, that's before other people have got it. So, of course, I made the mistake of being far too early to market and failing. <laughs> I made the mistake of recognising that the old Truman Brewery was going to be the most amazing space that there was. I made the mistake of thinking that there would be a ready audience for this and that they would immediately go, hurrah, and let's have it. What they did was they went, hurrah, uh, no, we're not going to spend any money. 
course, within a very short space of time, we'd created the most exciting design store in the world. We had all sorts of interest in it. It was a very small world at the time, and everybody realised it was extraordinary. But we were also running through what little savings I did have at a rate of knots, which meant that I was immediately very, very stressed. I was seeing what would have bought me a home disappearing down the drain sure. with lots of people saying, congratulations, isn't it exciting? And me basically drowning. And yet what we'd also done at the same time was we'd come up with this idea for producing a show, which we called Designer's Block, that reflected the excitement that we felt when we went to the Milan Design Week in April and saw this extraordinary collection of ideas and work and possibilities being presented in one place at one time and thought, why don't we have something like that in London? Now again, when you look back and you say, okay, every city in the world now has or wants a design festival, an architecture festival, or what have you festival, everybody looks at a creative calendar, everybody looks at using big old empty buildings in transition for public shows where there's a great excitement. Now it's the norm. Completely. <laughs> Nobody realises there was a time just 20 years ago when that simply didn't exist. Mm. I mean, it was wonderful to see the, um, the Alexander McQueen film a few days ago and to realise how within that world he'd seen the possibility of using spaces in this dramatic way. But nobody had ever done so no. before. Whereas, you see, what I'd understood with the creative industries was that, or with design entrepreneurship in particular, was that the trade show was all about selling stuff. So you would go to a trade show, it was very rectilinear, it was all 90 degree angles, and it was all about selling stuff. It was all about what have you done in the past, and then selling it. So it was fronted by salespeople. But for the creative, it was about presenting your ideas and getting a response, and then interpreting that response or forming allegiances or learning from other people. But they didn't really have a place within which to do that or to present that. And I got the idea that if we took people into big old empty buildings, then there would be a certain sort of suspension of all that security that comes with going to a place where you know how to behave. You, know, you go pretty well to anywhere and you know how to behave. You know how to behave at a restaurant, you know how to behave at a museum, you know how to behave at the school, you know how to behave when you go visit your girlfriend's parents for the first time, sort of. <laughs> But there weren't many occasions when you were taken to a space where you could feel simultaneously safe, but also challenged. And by taking people into a big old empty building where they don't quite know what's round the corner, where they don't know what's happening, but where there's something that's incredibly exciting, is a really, it was a transgressive idea in lots of ways. Um, and it was a provocative idea in lots of ways that to me, I was wanting people to engage with something that they didn't quite understand, that was splendid. And that's what I felt the designers were doing, were things that were more than I understood, which I didn't completely understand, but which I wanted to find out more about. And creating the space for that was what we did. And we timed it to coincide with the main design festival, when the international audience would come to London and go, this brick cool thing, what's it all about? Where's it going on? And we gathered it all together into this thing and in some ways we didn't understand exactly what we were doing but in many ways we very much did understand what we were doing and we did something that caught fire because within a few years we were being flown to Tokyo to start Tokyo Designers Block, to do Seoul, to see other cities 
phoning us, we get phone calls from Australia with people going, we're going to do a designer's block in Australia. <laughs> and it became yeah. not a show and a brand, but it almost became a, a sort of, that's what any sort of transgressive alternative show is, is a designer's block. But of course, also, we created something that we didn't know how to control. We didn't know exactly what we were doing. We didn't know how to create the business opportunities on the back of it. We were doing something because we were fans. We were doing something that felt like graffiti sprayed yeah. on the wall. Which I think is really interesting because I think a lot of the non-conformist business owners that I come across some often the commerciality and turning the amazing idea into something that will make some kind of income for them sometimes is something they really struggle with so yeah i'd like to know well, more about that bit of it like do I, you think others that you'll come across have got that same oh completely issue? um completely and i think that the mindset that it takes to wander off into the unknown and <laughs> discover something amazing is very different to the mindset of the person who organizes it controls it yeah. um, commodifies it and manages the systems that are required to take that to life i think we'll discuss that a little bit more i think when we get on to talking about risk it yeah because we'll think. talk about the yeah. need for both yeah. the need for great ideas and the need for the systems of management and control but you see the old world used to say and it still does to a certain extent oh ideas are easy it's making them come true that's the hard thing to which i'd go bad ideas are easy good ideas are actually really quite difficult and what we need these days is good ideas and when i look at you know you can go to pretty well anywhere and you if you ever looked at objects and sort of put them in front of you and thought who was sat around the table when they decided to make 10,000 a day? <laughs> who? Who? It's like, no, surely not. You know, If I'd been in that room, I'd have been screaming and shouting and tearing myself out. They'd all like, oh, he's a bit odd, isn't he? I think we need more of you. <laughs> well, I think we do. But, um, yeah, I think we um, we do. We, but we need people who can can go off and explore that. And that's not... It's very, very rare that you have a character that is able to do both. Yeah. Which brings us on to a really nice question that I had actually, which was about when was it that you started to notice that there were others like you out there um, who were these square pegs and round holes and how were they coping? You must have, you've had a long journey. How, how, how have you met these people and what did they look like and you know how are they coping? Well, those who don't cope usually disappear. Mm. Um, sad it is sad and of course if they are personal friends then you understand that they're having a very very hard time yeah. having contributed an enormous amount and that their pain is dismissed yeah. or ignored there is a lot of hurt you know I mean we tend to see the ones who make it the ones who are able to get the skills around them to help to bring their ideas through who will trust them but for a lot of people that pain becomes too great and they have a very very hard time and is that simply because they're not understood and not supported by people that could help them get there do you think yes but it's something it's something deeper as a society we we don't really value the caring industries we mm. don't provide somewhere secure for people who struggle and i think the most original and beautiful minds struggle mm. but they're usually judged according to their inability to cope rather than 
the extraordinary thing that's there. And, and to be honest, it can be very, very hard to separate the, the slightly demented from the <laughs> extraordinary seed that's just struggling to, to, to force its way above ground. And I think I would certainly prefer to see a society where, where, where caring for people is a more intrinsic part of what we would inevitably want to do. See, I think also the journey, the time that it takes to ferment ideas and to distill them and to work them and work them can be a very long time. Mm. And people are impatient. People want to know the answer. They don't want to spend time listening to all the contortions that are going on in your mind that are part of that inevitable journey to try to distill things into something that has you know, real value and which we would gain from. Mm. People just would much rather have a sort of repetitive solution than a really engaging, poetic starting point or yeah. seed. Interesting. So uh, speaking of that then, so you've obviously met lots of people, which going through that journey, have there been specific what we would call non-conformists that you've admired on that journey? And why did you admire them? Who stood out? <laughs> well, I guess this is the sort of historical examples. That, you know, if you go back to sort of Galileo and the, the sort of the sort of persecution for daring to believe that the church's view of the world being at the centre of the universe was wrong. You know, those sort of historical ideas or uh, I'm a big fan of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his kind of other ways of thinking. I read a beautiful article recently about how he was almost certainly ADHD. And, uh, <laughs> he displayed all that, that sort of confusion of mind and, and difficulty in resolving things whilst also mm. sort of having incredible insight as well. And so you do sort of get those term turmoils. I think in the more recent past, people like Alan Turing were just extraordinary figures maybe you know would we have invested in that mind had it not been that we've been in the middle of the war where you necessarily need to invest in the sort of quite strange characters yeah it's sometimes only when things are looking incredibly insecure that we start to look around for something new see i'm interested in uncertainty and how we navigate it but 15 years ago people assumed that we were conquering uncertainty so why would anybody want to engage with ideas around the inevitability of uncertainty and how we acknowledge it and deal with it when we were convinced that we were in control? We'd won the war against communism. Mm. We had the end of history. We had well, sort of economic theory taking control of everything. And famously, a few months before the financial crisis of 2008, Gordon Brown, one of the most incredible political figures, curiously, was giving his speech at Mansion House in the city going, we have conquered boom and bust in economic cycles. And it's... Weird timing, huh? It is, isn't yeah. it? And there's a sort of... Um, I forget what the word is. Um, but, you know, there's a kind of hubris, I guess, isn't it? It's like just when we thought we had everything under control, suddenly it all goes bang. Yeah, I think a lot of us feel like at the moment we think we've gained control is usually the time we haven't <laughs> yes and i think those who sort of seek to put too much control into their lives are very often under the surface fighting and struggling really really hard and i just think it's a fascinating relationship we have with ourselves and and both individually but even you know sort of as a species within the earth how do we create some sort of order within the chaos yeah and is that an order that will answer all those things and mean that we don't have to struggle anymore 
or is there something more interesting going on which is a sort of continual engagement with a universe within which uncertainty is a coherent and consistent part yeah so i think we spend an awful lot of time trying to trying to eradicate uncertainty instead of learning to engage with it constructively mm. which i think is really interesting actually because it sounds like as you've been talking through your your journey today that there was there's clearly been a moment that made you decide to turn your difference in the way that you looked at the world into more of a place of power than a place of defeat. It sounds like you've sort of moved into that place of power now. Okay, with that. but I to... got to that by getting so fucking low. <laughs> right. Okay. I had to reevaluate and. I mean, this moves on in a way to recognising and being diagnosed as autistic. Sure. And you go, oh, right. Um, I spent 50 years of my life not knowing that I was autistic. And okay, 50 years ago, the criteria were different. We didn't understand those things very well. But there is some neurological difference that makes a big difference to who I am and how I see the world and what I get and what I don't get. And when I was diagnosed, that started a period of healing and a period of beginning to stop to blame myself for all the walls I've Starting to be kinder to yourself. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting, when I've been doing work around neurodiversity in the workplace, for example, you, you go through all of the barriers and how you might deal with it, and you ultimately end up with, can we be kinder yeah. to each other? Um, but you see, when things went wrong, or when things didn't work, then I assumed it was my fault. So I had to go back. And Which I think a lot of so. non-conformists do find themselves in that self-blame uh, place, don't they? Um, yeah, and I think to different degrees, that's what most people are encouraged to do. And, and actually, when I'm looking at something like how secondary school education works, for example, if you are neurodiverse, neurodivergent, then if you're dyslexic, you're branded as being stupid because you can't read and write if you're adhd you're kicked out for being disruptive and then you're assumed to be likely to be a knife wielding murderer Mm. if you're autistic then you're socially incompetent which means that you're to be dismissed it's very very difficult to stop just looking at what's missing and then focusing on that and to work more with what there is and nurture and support that And I think by and large, we spend far too long telling people off, telling them what's wrong, sit up straight, you know, (laughs) focus, do all of those things. Well, how do you how do you do that when your whole body and brain is whirring off in thousands of different directions? There's so many things going on. The idea that you're supposed to just sit still and focus on something is, is, is really, really hard. And yes, you are encouraged to assume that it's your fault. Yeah. Um, in many ways, I guess the system would like us all to be nice, you know, sort of quiet, gentle, hardworking. Oh fuck people. that! <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's not gonna. That's so, it's gonna a, be so it is quite a struggle. <laughs> so certainly that became part of it, and that was because I knew that I couldn't carry on the way that I was. Yeah. Um, so that turning point was the diagnosis. Was it a bit of a relief to find out that there was a reason? Huge. Yeah. Huge relief. It didn't mean that I suddenly had all the answers. No, it meant I then not. had to go through that journey of trying to understand that or or then trying to find something written or spoken that would help me to go, yes, that looks like me. 
because a lot of the support that's out there is focused on people who probably struggle in very different ways to how I do. Mm. And that's not to say they're wrong, I'm right. It's just to say there's a massive range Spectrum, of different yeah. people. I mean, the old phrase of once you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person <laughs> is so true. <laughs> I've never heard that. If you know. <laughs> but in a way, it kind of makes sense because if you grow up in a... In, a, in an environment of 100 people and you're the one strange one, or if you're in 200 and there's one other, you don't know who that other one is. No, and because you aren't learning through an exchange of ideas and a sort of coming together of beliefs that shared across the group, your own route will inevitably be quite divergent. And the other person who's going on that same journey will wander off into somewhere else completely different. I think there's a level at which you do find each other, but even when you do, you might find them quite difficult and annoying <laughs> and <laughs> very odd yourself. So it's kind of quite hard to sort of find I quite that. like odd people. I'm attracted to odd people. Well, and now <laughs> I've kind of managed to find a... I guess that's one of the things that's quite hopeful now is, is, is finding a community of people who have also been diagnosed mm. with whom I find I share more than I have with with others. So I don't have to try to fit in anymore with within a space a... where I clearly don't. Yeah. There must be a relief. It's a huge relief. But there's still a it's still a journey to to value myself, really. Yeah. And I don't think I've got there yet. I think that there are still these ideas in my head that I very powerfully need to put out there in a way that makes them meaningful beyond just myself yeah. in order for me to value myself. And the idea that you know I need for those ideas to be validated in order for yeah. me to value myself is a, is a sort of slightly contradictory one. And I'm, I think we're all like that, to be fair. I think everybody yeah. uh, during their lifetime is... You know, if they're, if they're an analytical thinker, we'll be constantly questioning whether or not their ideas are right hmm. uh, or not, um, what have you. Which brings us on to a really cool point about this new venture that you're mm -hmm. going on with um, with Rhiannon James, who's your, who's your partner, uh, with Riskit. Um, you know, when, when we first met, your thinking, your ideas and your approach to innovation blew me away. Um, Thank you. I think I think it's really interesting because a lot of the time innovation at the moment I think tends to be talked about from mostly a technical perspective, which is a bit annoying for people like me who I think I'm quite innovative in the way that I do things. But you know you can't enter an innovation award because it's all about tech. Nothing wrong with tech. Tech's great. But I think innovation beyond just the technical innovation uh, fascinated me so i want to hear more about risk it and what this new business and methodology and thinking is and why it exists and what you're going to do with it and where it's going to go and all that kind of stuff so yeah i'd, I'd like to hear more about that if that's okay well as you say i mean technical innovation is just one area of innovation and maybe it's the sparkly new jewel that everybody's still <laughs> fascinated by but, you know, if you look at human-centric innovation, then really that's about exploring need and desire and then providing for that. And uh, a lot of that area of design innovation, I think, is much more fascinating than, 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 than just sort of adding a, a, a technical tag 
to it. The starting point for Risk It really came with when I read about chaos theory. And chaos theory I came across in my mid to late 20s. And it said some things behave in linear, consistent ways, and that we call classical science, but some things don't. In many instances in the universe and the world, little differences in conditions can make predicting where things will end up impossible. They can veer off into lots of different directions. And I thought that was fascinating. And I thought, wow, that's why I dropped out of my economics degree at university. <laughs> because economists and social scientists were trying to model the world in a way that would make it repeatable and predictable and certain. And wherever I looked, I could see unpredictability and uncertainty and things veering off in strange directions that you couldn't anticipate. And I thought trying to tie down human interactions and relationships and propositions and values and meanings and needs into some sort of fixed set of, right, this is what it is, this is how you get it, and on. That just didn't ring true to me. What was fascinating for me was change, was that we couldn't predict the future, that things cropped up in the world that led towards things going off in strange directions. I think it was Anthony Eden, the, the Prime Minister, who was in a sort of wonderfully secure position within his party and government, and somebody said, well, what could possibly go wrong? Everything's great. And he turned around and he said something along the lines of, events, dear boy, events. <laughs> and it's that habit that the world has of throwing a spanner in the works. Of it feels a universe, doesn't it? Just chuck those in when it feels like it. <laughs> it does, and it's just like we can't be as secure as maybe people would like to assume we would want to be, or that we are, or that we should be. There's something about the way the world is and we are within the world. I mean, I think we have to think of humans not as this sort of controlling master race, but as being of life, yeah? yeah? And if we then look at life and say, is it linear? Well, some things are linear, but some things are non-linear. So I wanted to go, well, how do we look at humans and human interactions in terms of the non-linear space? So under linear, you've got predictability, certainty, control, that's what business sort of wants. But within the uncertain space, you've got unpredictability, you've got the journey into the unknown. And that's where creative thinkers go. They venture off into the unknown in order to explore something, in order to see relationships between things that hadn't been made clear before and going, well, that's an interesting thought. And then bringing that back and saying, well, what do we do with it? So if we're looking for anything new, we have to venture into the unknown. And we have to be willing to question our assumptions and our beliefs and to wonder if there's something else that we might do. But you don't do that through some fixed process of investigation. You do that through, I don't know, staring at the waves, the stars, um, maybe going off and doing something that, that, that you're not used to. Um, maybe 
and I don't, I don't tend to think that we come up with ideas like as a, a sort of snap idea that just comes. I think we spend years just sort of rotating thoughts and it's a bit like I'm picking a lock. You just keep, keep, keep exploring. And, and then suddenly something becomes clear. And it's with that that you go, wow, that's really fascinating. So what I did with chaos theory was it said, well, this chaotic area isn't random. Within that space, there are patterns, and those patterns are fractal, and that um, things develop over time, and they rotate, and they mutate, and they evolve, and they grow, and you can't tell exactly where they're going to go, but there is, some, there is some sort of coherent logic that guides how they behave, how they interact. Now, obviously, as you can tell, anybody listening to this will understand, I'm not a scientist, I'm not somebody that understands chaos theory completely. But you've read a lot. But that basic idea that there was some sort of repeat pattern that existed in the interrelationship between things, I thought would be, would sit in the back of my mind and I would continue to think about it as I looked at how you get different people working together coherently to bring ideas to life. Mm -hmm. And when I was working with the sort of micro-creative businesses, they were very small. And you would think, well, okay, so you used to be a designer and there'd be a manufacturer that would take on your work and then they'd take it off to market. Or there'd be a brand that would employ a manufacturer to produce the design of the designer. But suddenly you've got the designer taking responsibility for engaging with the end user who then might produce it or they might get somebody to produce it. But suddenly that relationship between roles was slightly different and I found myself going okay so here I am writing these courses for creative entrepreneurs to help them to do their job better and what are the core relationships that they need to manage effectively if they're going to bring their ideas to life and I thought well there are two relationships that make sense one is between the designer and the manufacturer how do you get something made and one of them is between the designer and the market how do you reach your audience? Who was your audience? And that became a very useful model for me to be able to explain how you might work effectively with people, what their values and needs might be, how you shape it up, what responsibilities you know to take, take on. But one day I drew three circles as a sort of Venn diagram and I marked one of them idea, which might be all the designs, all the thoughts, all the possibilities of the proposition. One of them was produce, which was, can you do, how do you do what you're looking to do, who do you do it with? And one of them was deliver, which is, who's it for, how do you reach them? Da -da 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 -da. And I looked at these three circles on a page, and I just stopped, and I thought, my God, that relationship is fascinating. Because not only did it, it made me go back to that sense of there are simple patterns that can describe the relationships that we enter into when bringing ideas to life. That there are simple patterns that describe our motion through the universe. And it sounds so big, but because I've been thinking about them for 15 or 20 years, when I saw that Venn diagram in front of me, I was just blown away and I can still remember the feeling and the place where I was when I do it. And the crazy thing is that we're now looking to use that basic relationship pattern as the 
basis of being able to help people to understand how they develop ideas, um, how they explore bringing them to life, who they work with in order to do it, um, on what terms they work, who might drive the innovation through, how you build a case for innovation, how you test it, how you grow it. And it sounds ridiculously simple and slightly stupid, but actually we can see that all of those travails that you have in figuring out what your proposition is, who your market is, where their values lie, how you can respond to that, what you need to be able to offer, how you manage that, what you put in place. All of those things we can explore by using this very simple framework. And so it's a framework for innovation. It's a framework yeah. for innovation. It's a framework for measuring what we do. It's a guide for exploring ideas and possibilities for respecting what we have, where the gaps might lie, what investigation we might enter into, um, a way of thinking about the language we use to uh, communicate within the team or to audiences. Um, and it's also a very clear way of explaining the relationship that we have with the people who we are providing things for and the people with whom we work to provide those things. So in some ways I see it as a guide to innovation, in some ways I see it as a metric. Um, and it's one of those strange things, it sort of doesn't exist, but what <laughs> I think it is, is the pattern that helps explain guide navigators through the uncertain territory of wondering what we're doing and how we bring that to life. It's really interesting because you used a phraseology that I, I, I know that you've created yourself, the trinary hmm. approach, which I think was really interesting. T tell me more about sort of the difference between, you know, linear, binary and trinary, because <laughs> I think that was the thing that I think really hit home to me. Of I remember when I told you that I was calling it trinary and you went wow and it really does hit home and I've kind of realized that unless we own how impactful that word is then we're kind of slightly hiding behind mm -hmm. the ideas and the impact that we really believe it will have I mean people obviously think you're mad if you go I want to change the way in which we measure Everything. Everything. <laughs> oh, no. It's not how fucking mad you want to be. And I remember somebody turning around to me, a chap I really respect, and saying that the more you... If, if you turn around and say, I'm going to make a little difference, then people go, great, okay, fine. But if you go, I'm going to change the world, and the yeah. systems of metrics and things, you're like, you're mad. And of course, I am a little bit. But again, this is around belief and, yeah. and around needing others around me who can at least go some way towards allowing me and helping me to build the case around what we do. Okay, so trinary, trinary or binary. binary I've always hated binary. <laughs> I've always hated binary because binary is about right, wrong, good, bad, strong, weak. And too much of history is about the strong defeating the weak, you know, whether that's between male and female, whether that's between white and black, whether that's between communism and capitalism. It's all been about battling. 
it's all about I'm right you're wrong it's all it's not about the shades of gray it's not about the subtleties it's not about the the poetics it's not about the that sort of wondering and exploring and discovering it's about being firm and strong and what have you and yet as societies we've tended during times of deep uncertainty to look for somebody that will come along and say I can do it I'm in control I'm the right one now whether you're looking back to 45 50 whether you're looking at the contemporary era be very scared mm. of anybody who tells you they know all the answers yeah. yeah which which by the way is you know the whole current status quo is very much binary yeah isn't it absolutely yeah so you know you come up with a point of view there's somebody that's going to sort of destroy you or try to destroy you mm. for it and in that if you believe in that system then you'll go only the strong survive therefore i must destroy my enemies and that's such a destructive thing and when we're going back to that sort of idea in my 20s around systems that work and systems that fail destroying everything in order to create something new is a really bad idea yeah. to my mind and it really scares me that i used to well i used to believe i don't that we would have to see things collapse in order for things to grow but clearly things have to get to a state where people go oh my god this is terrifying before you're going to consider the possibility of something else yeah. being in its place but what i want to be in its place has to be constructive it has to be built on values that i think are important like valuing people supporting the community of people providing something that's healthy it's like you know we need good soil for the plants to grow yeah. and and i think we've lost touch with providing good community environment for things to grow we tend to spend too long telling people that they're wrong or telling them they've got to get higher and, and, and actually I think we need somewhere that's more supportive I think there's something that we need to take care of that's around the local around the home mm. certainly for myself and my own well-being it's important for me to have a home to cook food to take care of my boy my family and people around me and and sometimes we've been told well forget about that go off and do your career and do all of those things but that was the old bloke type yep. of approach to life and i think that aiming high and looking to do things really good stems from having somewhere secure and supportive mm. around you at the home level that doesn't mean it's not you know, completely secure it's not like you know it just becomes um where we we're not challenging anything but i think we need both so i think we need something that's secure and which we believe in and which is ours and it's local and which is fine um but we also need to be able to go out there and aim high and reach for the stars and and and, and, and do things that are absolutely extraordinary um which brings us to a really interesting point actually which is kind of the last question of the day i think which is about especially when you talked about the stars, what, what is that future for non-conformists, do you think? We're kind of, you're kind of starting, I think, where you want to carry on. What, what do you think holds, what's the future hold for non-conformists from your perspective? Well, if we look at it from the broader, it's like what does society gain from there being a bunch of non-conformists? 
Well, it gains new ideas. It gains new perspective. We need those people. Mm, desperately you know, at the moment, I think. You know, there's a, there was a quote um, that came from Einstein, who coming up with amazing quotes. And I remember I told you this quote when I when I saw you, and it said, "We can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. We're not going to solve." the crises and uncertainties of today by repeating the systems and methodologies and approaches of the past. Absolutely. We need something different. And that's not going to come from people who are conformists. It needs people who think differently. The people that we tend to beat up and accuse of being ridiculous and stupid or dreamers or worthless, what have you, just because we don't get them. We have to engage and support we have to explore new ways of thinking about things and we want those approaches or solutions to be coherent and constructive and beneficial and and that way we we understand the sort of variants and colors and diversities and alternatives and different ways of being people that do things different to me but which i think are fabulous you know that's great Instead of going, oh, you're different to me, therefore there's something wrong. Mm. Um, we've got to look and go, wow, that's amazing. That's not <laughs> me, though. You know, it's fine, <laughs> you know, because I'm here and I have enough sense of belief in myself. So the rest of it. us, whether we're conformists or non-conformists, I think have a responsibility to provide a more supportive environment, I think, for the non-conformists is what I'm hearing from you is that there well, needs I, to be I think we do but I think also judgmental and well I think a lot of non see for me and maybe it's because that's where I'm finding my own group is amongst people who are termed neurodivergent yeah now that's a term that we will understand better in 30 years than we do now we understand it better now than we did 30 years ago these aren't final sort of classifications these are understanding the complexities that exist within human beings but I think the fact that there is now a the emergence of a gathering of people who are neurodivergent thinkers autistic ADHD dyslexic the fact that we are beginning to find our own community the fact that we're actually meeting together the fact that we're reassuring each other um, the fact that we're listening to each other the fact that we're providing a space to communicate that strength is also important because it mm. means instead of all of those non-conformists existing within their own tiny little bubble where they're continually feeling alienated, isolated, attacked, vulnerable, what have you, there's a strength that's coming from those of us gathering together a bit around that. Now, that doesn't mean that we want to create a community that excludes people who aren't diagnosed mm. as neurodivergent. And I think that the complexities are exactly what we're seeing. But there is a strength that comes with meeting and knowing that there are other people a bit more like me mm. it means i'm not just the mad isolated <laughs> individual who exists in a universe that's not to do with this real world i think there's i like the honesty that's there i like the slightly craziness that's <laughs> there i like um 
you know, there is a vulnerability within that that sure. we shouldn't be scared of that. Yeah. There is, you know, Brene Brown talks a lot about the power of vulnerability, doesn't she? Which, mm. I, which I think, what's really interesting about what you're saying, I think we did talk about it way earlier, actually, and sort of um, need, I think, to finish off on the fact that, you know, you were talking about there, there needs to be the ideas people, but there needs to be the other people. I, you know, mm. Rhiannon is that for you, yeah. that person that helps you, the, the the yin to your yang kind of thing. The yin and it? yang thing is a really, really coherent thing, and it's why Eastern thought is different to Western yeah. thought, because we tend to value the, the linear much more than we do the non-linear, whereas the yin and yang is too much order with no chaos is yeah. wrong. Too much chaos without some order is wrong. Yeah. But equally, it would be wrong to say Rhiannon is linear and I'm non-linear. No, no, no. And she was very, sort of, when I sort of said, you know, I need a bit of your sort of, order and what have you to go with my <laughs> madness and chaos she, she didn't think you like and B, she wasn't really right I mean there's just a very interesting relationship so what we're really saying is because you know, when I looked at this linear and non-linear and you start to look at the language if you say okay so linear is 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 predictable order certainty and then and non-linear is unpredictable uncertain what have you and then you say to people where does the word rational fit well, too many people would too quickly assume that rational fits within linear. And I'm like, does that mean that nonlinear is irrational? Mm. Actually, it's much more rational to believe that both exist, that they behave with different qualities, and that there is a constant and consistent interaction between the two. So it's a bit like there is a melding of the linear and the nonlinear, the certain and the uncertain, that uncertainty does work in ways that are different to the ways that certain things work, where you can predict the output from something. The, the non-linear doesn't work in that. So you, we have to respect that. We have to stop going, well, let's get rid of uncertainty. You have to find a way to engage with that more constructively. That's what we're looking to do is to provide people with a framework that helps them to navigate that uncertain space more constructively. Mm. And what we've discovered is that that framework works both well for the exploration of possibilities and uncertainties and what have you, but it also actually works as a very good measure and template for how you set the roles and responsibilities that are needed to see those propositions through to market, manage the business, clearly state what you're doing, measure what you've done, fit in with systems. So it's really fascinating that we're doing it. And what we're really saying is, the world's complex. Well, it is. Yeah, it is. Can I say one quote, which interestingly, I came across this morning when I looked of up the course. word nonconformity. And the reason why it so stood out for me was because it was a quote that I really stuck on some years ago when I was asked to give a talk on the word bravery and the quote is the opposite of bravery is not cowardice but conformity agreed yes agreed <laughs> we need to be brave we do need to be brave and i think um i think that's a really nice wrap up for the end of the <laughs> conversation today it's been absolutely fascinating as always i've enjoyed uh, having a chat to you as as i have since the moment we met um, I'm really looking forward to the things that we're going to do together with FTSQ oh, and Risk brilliant. It. I think it's exciting. 
Um, the world does need a bit of a shake-up, but it also needs an answer. Shaking up is not enough. I think the answer needs to come with it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to developing that with you. So thank you very thank much you. for your time today. Really thank you great. Thank for coming um, And thanks for being the very first person ever to talk to me Hello. on the podcast. Woo! Thank <laughs> you very much. Many more, and I look forward to hearing <laughs> those too. <laughs> thank you.